Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast exploring reproductive technology and life-changing stories. Here are your hosts, Jennifer White and Ellen Trackman. Welcome to I Want to Put a Baby in You, a podcast where we explore all things assisted reproductive technology. We love telling the personal stories of lives changed by this new technology, which changes how how we have children and how we think of families. Um, we love telling the personal stories. We also feel so lucky when we get to talk to experts, which we will get to today. Um, I'm Ellen Trackman. I am an attorney in assisted, specialized in assisted reproductive technology law, uh, and I run a surrogacy agency together with my sister, Jennifer White. And by run, I mean, I do nothing. I just have her do everything, of <laughs> course. So sit back, relax, and like mumble about the law. That's that's what I do. But Hi. I co-host this podcast with Jennifer as well. The, the mumbling about the law is really important, I have to say. <laughs> um, but I think that goes to show like family is really important to us. And we really love to help people grow their families because we it, it, it means a lot. Um, but I am Jennifer White, and I have the, the pleasure of being the co-host of this and uh, the director of Bright Futures Families, which is a surrogacy matching agency. Uh, and even more of a pleasure, I have the impressive, it's been impressive so far this season. I mean, I know people don't know what's going on going forward, but I really, we've had a lot of really good guests. And this, I think, is a, a really great one. We have Dr. Althea O'Shaughnessy of Conceptions Reproductive Medicine in Colorado. It is one of the top clinics in Colorado, and I will say probably pretty high up in the United States. Um, Dr. O'Shaughnessy herself actually has won the Castle Connolly Top Doctor Award for seven out of the eight last years. So she is really impressive. And also, she um, she'll, she'll discuss this in the interview, but she had dreams of being a professional tap dancer. So uh, I think that's pretty awesome. So without further ado, we would love to get to talking to Dr. O'Shaughnessy. Today, we are here with Dr. Althea O'Shaughnessy, and I'm so excited that she's taking a few minutes out of her time of um, solving major medical problems, fulfilling dreams for people who want a child and come to her to, to help them. I mean, it's an, it's an incredible practice. So um, Dr. O'Shaughnessy is a doctor, of course, specialized in reproductive endocrinology and fertility. And Dr. O'Shaughnessy, do you want to give a, a, more, a more thorough introduction to yourself? Thank you for being here. Sure, sure. Um, so I am a reproductive endocrinologist, board certified, and I'm um, currently working at Conceptions Reproductive Associates of Colorado. Uh, main office is in Littleton, Colorado. Um, I've been here only eight months. Um, oh, I didn't realize it was so I, short. I, I feel like so short. Like you're, such, yes. you're such a force of nature. I feel like you've always don't, been there. Don't, don't, yeah, I look like I'm like originally from Colorado. Yeah, right. Anyway, not, not with my accent. Um, so a, um, I used to work in New York City uh, on Fifth Avenue, and um, I was recruited by uh, Conceptions to come here, um, and I made the right decision. It's a great practice. Um, a bit of an adjustment from New York City, but it's... it's is, is there any difference between Fifth Avenue and Littleton, Colorado? <laughs> a, a little bit. A little bit. So... Um, and I, uh, originally from New York city, uh, I grew up in New York, um, and, um, went to school 
most of my schooling was in Connecticut. So most of my life has been on, on the East Coast, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, and was in private practice for over 18 years um, in New Jersey, in Princeton, New Jersey, and then took the job in New York City. Um, I, I sold my practice and wanted to work with other people and wanted to be in the city, go back to New York. Um, so that's why I went to New York. Um, so, so, yeah. So what actually originally brought you to medicine? What Was this your original life dream? No, I wanted to be a dancer. Oh. <laughs> Cause, Cause, I'll tell you, my, my life dream was medicine, but I just was not that sharp. So, um, but yeah, but dancing, that's exciting. So, um, as you can imagine, a very competitive field, um, much more competitive, much more competitive than medicine, believe it or not. And so, um, I don't know if you've ever watched the, the show fame on, um, in, in, on TV, but that was a show about the New York, um, school of performing arts. And so that was a high school, professional high school. Um, oh, I, I had did, to try did, out. Did you go to high school? Not, um, oh, but the, you tried out. I did not make the oh. cut. Um, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, my dreams, my dreams were dashed. So, um, I, I always liked science. And so, um, I was, um, I was accepted to a program where, uh, for kids who were interested in medicine and, um, at NYU. And so that got me interested in, in the field of medicine from high school, um, and then the rest is history. So I was... Well, how early did you know what area to specialize in? Did you always think, like, I love babies, I want to help dreams come true of having a family? No, I was... <laughs> um, actually, actually, no, I mean, I always knew that I wanted to be in some kind of women's healthcare field, but I was very interested in surgery. So when I was, when I was in medical school, the first minute I walked into an OR... Uh, operating room, I was hooked. Um, and so, but unfortunately when I was in, when I was in medical school, um, the, uh, culture was not as, as open to women in, in, in the field of surgery than it is now. Um, so my rotation when I was, uh, uh, in medical school was not a very favorable one. So, um, OBGYN was the second best and, and lots of surgery, uh, much more favorable to women. Although there were very, very few women in OBGYN, obviously it was just much more favorable to women in general. So that's why I went into OBGYN and concentrated on a field that I knew I was going to do some surgery. Um, which was reproductive endocrinology. So in those days, because there was no IVF, um, you know, it was pre-IVF, uh, we had to do a lot more surgery to try to fix tubes and try to fix the uterus. And um, so the field was much more leaning towards a, a surgical field. Obviously, there was other, you know, we did, you still use fertility drugs and things like that. But um, so that, that's what attracted me to reproductive endocrinology. So it, I would say that, you know, pretty much early on when I was, um, uh, in medical school, I kind of knew the direction I was going to take, but really, uh, kind of solidified my, my, uh, decision when I was obviously a resident. Yeah. Well, thank you for being a trailblazer for women and fighting to, to be a great surgeon and to, to practice and lead the way for other women. we as a woman, I appreciate that. Not as one that was able to become a doctor, but yeah. 
So tell us a little bit about your practice at Conceptions. Kind of what what do you focus on there? What do what are the kind of common problems that your patients have when they come to you? I would say, um, you know, uh, now the field of reproductive endocrinology has has changed dramatically. It, it is very um, focused um, mainly on in vitro fertilization, just because our rates, our pregnancy rates, have gotten so much better. Um, and so I would say majority of I, our field is focuses on that. Um, obviously we still use fertility drugs and do inseminations and things like that. And there's a little bit of surgery involved, but certainly not as much as, as it used to be. Um, and most of the time, most of our patients that come in, their etiology for infertility is is related to um, diminished ovarian reserve. I would say a good number of, of the patients are older, um, and so just are having a harder time getting pregnant because the, their number of eggs have have diminished and the quality of their eggs have diminished. Um, we do get a lot of patients who have failed at other centers and come to see us to see if we can do a better job, which of course we can. Um, uh, I'm curious. Um, do you know what the cause is for ovarian, the decreased ovarian reserve, and kind of seeing more women like that? Do you think it's just our careers and waiting longer, environmental factors that you know who knows what we're eating, or some combo? Do you have, do you have any idea or thoughts on it? Uh, I think a lot of it is is um, career. Um, you know, women are going to school; they're not getting married as young. Uh, they're more focused on their career before they, you know, want to get pregnant. Um, they want to be more, um, uh, stabilized in their lives before they have a, they have children. So all that combined, I think, you know, has, they kind of put things off. And I think that, you know, lack of, of good education to women and how important it is to, you know, how important age is in terms of, of, uh, their fertility potential. And of course that varies. Um, you know, you can have young women with diminished ovarian reserve, their prognosis is better, uh, even if they have lower number of eggs, just because their egg quality is better. Um, whereas if you have a woman who's in their late thirties and forties, um, their numbers are diminished in most cases and their egg quality is, is poor. So that just puts them in a whole other, uh, category in terms of difficulty in getting, in getting pregnant. Um, yeah. I see this in a lot of medicine. I mean, I, not just you, but I mean, I especially feel like, and it, it feels like your field is a lot more like a puzzle, like always trying to put all of the pieces together from every different place. And is that, does that kind of feel like it, it's like you're on a detective journey every single day? <laughs> uh, no, but that's what makes it so much, uh, you know, so, so much fun to, to, to do this. Um, and so interesting because there, our field has changed so much. So it's dynamic. Um, you know, there's new things coming out and new things we can offer patients, but yes, sometimes it is a puzzle, you know, patients come in and they have failed at other centers. And sometimes you have to kind of take a step back and say, Whoa, let's just, Let's uncover every possible um, thing that we can to see what's going on and why you haven't gotten pregnant. Um, and sometimes having fresh eyes, you know, just going to another doctor, having them look over everything. What have we not done? What What is going on um, really makes a difference. So, yeah, so that's a big part of what we do is 
um, trying to figure out why a couple, you know, are, are not getting pregnant um, and then coming up with a, a plan that's just right for them. Um, you know, unfortunately, there are some there's some facilities where it's a very um, kind of cookie cutter. Uh, you're this old and this is what we're going to do for you. But I think that um, that doesn't serve um, uh the patient any good. And I think that, um, you know, trying to put a best effort forward to try to make it a more individualized approach is, is the way to go. So you just touched a little bit on, you know, especially people are holding off to later in life. Are do you, do you have any inclination as to why that trend is? Is it because people are seeing celebrities having babies later? Is that really starting to make a big difference in, in where people are going? Um, I think, no, I, well, I think that yes, you know, lack of education because a lot of these, uh, celebrities that are having, you know, twins at a very, uh, at a much later age, I would assume probably have used donor egg. Um, they're not going to tell you that. Um, and unfortunately patients <laughs> are then under the false impression, Ugh. well, you know, so-and-so was 40 seven and had twins. So why can I get pregnant? Or my grandmother was 50 when she had, you know, her last child, um, you know, things like that. Or my, the town that I come from, everyone is 40 something when they had, you know, up to 48 before, you know, when they have their last baby. So all that kind of comes into play and they, you know, every, everybody kind of lumps themselves in the same in the same category. And I always tell patients, your biological clock is a very individual thing. Um, yes, you know, uh, it tends to run in families, but that's not always the, always the case. And so you, you have to accept that you're a separate person. And so we have to treat you as an individual and, and, and figure things out as an individual, not as, you know, oh, you know, you, you're like so-and-so or you're like so-and-so. Yes. So I think that has a lot to do with with it as well. And I think people are becoming much more educated. I think that women are now beginning to understand that there are things that you can do, tests that you can take to, um, to test your ovarian reserve. There are women now that are understanding that we have, you know, you can freeze your eggs now. Um, and so that, possibility is available to them. So if they know that there's no possibility of them having a a pregnancy in the near future, and they're getting to that age where they're getting a little worried, uh, in their, you know, in their thirties, um, uh, egg freezing now is a, is a possibility. So that's, uh, fortunately that's become, you know, much more common and women are becoming more educated. So that's, that's a good thing. That's, that's a good, that's a good side of the celebrity thing. To try to make it a little bit more personal, do you have a favorite story or a couple of favorite patient stories you could tell to kind of give color to, to what you do and who you help? Well, some, you know, some always, there's always stories that stand out in, in, you know, in, when it, in your practice, um, the stories that I'm, one of the stories that I can tell is, is, uh, you know, and they, they always have, um, uh, they're almost like a teaching moment, so to speak. They, you know, they teach you things that that allow you to be a better doctor in the future. So there's a, a you know, there was one one patient who um, who came to see me, um, and very simple. You know, she had polycystic ovarian disease, which is the most common cause for infertility. 
um, for ovulatory dysfunction or, you know, irregular cycles. And um, she was young. She was in her early 30s, late 20s, actually. Um, and so she came in, oh, okay, we're going to put you on some fertility drugs. We're going to make you ovulate. You're going to get pregnant and boom, boom, you know, so that's always <laughs> when you see a patient, that's always your assumption. Oh, she, this is simple, um, which is always nice to have some simple <laughs> cases. So she, uh, we put her on fertility drugs and sure enough, um, uh, her first cycle, she got pregnant, um, and then unfortunately had, um, uh, looked like she'd had an ectopic, ectopic pregnancy. Uh, no. So um, in those days, we're much more liberal with uh, going to the operating room when patients had ectopic pregnancies, and actually that served her purpose. I mean, it was a good thing that we did take her to the operating room. So we took her to the operating room, uh, did a laparoscopic procedure where we put, put a scope in the in the belly to see, you know, if we can see the ectopic where it is and take care of it. Um, and an ectopic pregnancy is obviously a pregnancy that generally is in the in one of the fallopian tubes. So we really didn't see an obvious ectopic pregnancy. She had some blood in her pelvis. So I decided I'm going to do a DNC, um, which is just to scrape the uterus to see if the pregnancy, um, the abnormal pregnancy, we knew it was abnormal, uh, was actually in the uterus. So I did a DNC and um, we finished the case. And then um, we're waiting for the pathology report to come back because when you get tissue, you always send it to pathology. And unfortunately, the pathology came back as um, endometrial cancer. Oh, my goodness. So, um, yeah, so we had to then get, you know, other hospitals involved. And we set the slides out for a second opinion because she was so young. She was in her late 20s. How could she have endometrial cancer? Um, And... She, um, it was confirmed that she had endometrial cancer. So not only did I have to sit down and talk with her about her abnormal pregnancy, um, but also that she, she now had, you know, she was diagnosed with, with endometrial cancer. Um, and, um, so obviously I had to refer her to a, a, um, a GYN oncologist, a gynecologic oncologist, which I sent, uh, to someone I knew, uh, who was also in New Jersey, um, they, uh, were willing to try some, uh, therapy, progesterone therapy, cause they knew that the cancer was very early. Um, and so they were willing to see if we could just resolve the cancer with high doses of progesterone basically. Which- and, and at this point you're not, are you telling her to, to go through an egg retrieval or is she looking at losing her fertility or no? No, That's- I mean, we, we, Obviously, that was not our, our intention was because of her age to try to reserve, you know, to preserve her fertility as much as possible. Um, we wanted to see if we could at least get the cancer under control before even thinking about doing any kind. Of- so, so, Dr. O'Shaughnessy, I have to just ask you just because I, you know, this is my total neophyte medical knowledge. But, you know, normally you hear like hormones are bad if you're pregnant. What does progesterone do to help in treating that cancer? Then? So, um it it kind of suppresses the the activity you know obviously cancer is fast growing cells cells that divide very fast so what the progesterone does is suppresses that uh, it's very specific to the uterine uh, tissue so obviously you have to use really high doses and fortunately we had uh, the morena iud which was you know came out about 2010 um was just um starting to be used um 
for patients with endometrial cancer. Um, young, no, you know, I know. Uh, it was interesting. interesting. Early, early endometrial cancer. Um, so she was on a combination of the Marina IUD and then the, the uh, oral uh, progesterone. Um, and so they, the, the idea was we were going to recheck her, do another DNC um, to see whether or not there was a resolution of the endometrial cancer. She then had a DNC. DNC, according to this physician, did not show that there was mm-hmm. adequate suppression. Um, he then sat down with her and said, no, you need a hysterectomy, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So um, I sat down with her. I said, you know what? Let's, let's, you know, let's talk to somebody else. Let's, you know, this is a really important decision. You have really early cancer. Endometrial cancer generally is not a very fast growing cancer. Um, and because okay. her cancer was just so early, uh, we felt comfortable kind of sending her to someone else. So I sent her uh, to someone in New York um, who said, well, let me, uh, let me look at the slides. Let's have our pathologist look at the slides and see what they think. And fortunately, um, the, their pathologist felt that there was some change in the endometrial cancer from the first to the to the second time we did the DNC. And she was then willing to progress with treatment. Um, so um, we were lucky enough to found, to found this physician who, uh, you know, aggressively wanted to treat her and try to preserve this patient's uh, fertility. So um, she then proceeded, did some more treatment, kept on doing DNCs. Oh, I don't know how many DNCs this poor woman had. God bless her. She was unbelievable, so strong, um, just unbelievable. And finally, um, finally, after several months of of treatment, it showed that she had, her cancer had, you know, had regressed um, completely. So um, our our plan was to do, you know, obviously to try to get her pregnant ASAP. Mm -hmm. Um, So our first plan, and of course the only way to do that really is with in vitro fertilization. That was the, the fastest way to do it, which is generally what women do uh, when they're in a fertility preservation situation. So we did um, a retrieval. We got some, we got embryos um, and we weren't doing genetic testing at that time, um, but uh, we got embryos and we froze them. The plan was to continue with her treatment for several more months before even thinking about doing uh, an egg retrieval, but at least we had, you know, at least we had embryos uh, frozen. So uh, we got to the point where we were going to do a, um, where she was okayed for pregnancy. She came in, we did a um, frozen embryo transfer and she did not get pregnant. Um, Yeah. So we sat down again and I said, you know what? Um, your uterus, when we tried to build up the lining, it just doesn't look right. It's abnormal. It's just not right. I think, you know, you're going to have our time getting pregnant. We really need to start thinking about a gestational carrier. So she went as far as actually hiring a lawyer and looking for a carrier and things like that. But of course, in the meantime, uh, she says, you know what? I'm not happy with this. I'm going to, I'm going to get another opinion. No, actually she said, no, I want to do another retrieval cycle. I want to do a fresh retrieval cycle and transfer fresh. I think my uterus, <laughs> I think my uterus does better fresh. Now this is a patient. She's like, she I talked to my uterus. She's unbelievable. My uterus she just, just, you know, she, 
<laughs> she just, you know, and I, and her requests were very reasonable. And I said, well, let's go for it. Let's do it. Let's do a fresh transfer and see if we can see if we can do better. Um, yes. and fortunately holding, holding she breath, got pregnant. Breath, okay. okay. And wow. so, <laughs> so she, she, she told me, see, yeah. I'm right. Um, and I, I love that. I, you know, I, I, my, I don't, my ego is not that big. So I, I said, um, so she actually had a very uncomfortable, fortunately for her, cause some of these patients, because of their uterus, uterus is so abnormal and their lining is abnormal, can have issues with the placenta. Um, and her mm. pregnancy, fortunately, was very Aww. smooth and um she had a beautiful baby girl um Aww, yay. yeah so she had some more embryos i don't you know unfortunately i left my practice um and went to new york at you know um and so she had some embryos left and um sought care with a, another provider but kind of lost track of what happened with her but i know she has a little baby girl or not a baby girl anymore she's probably i don't even know how old she is she's probably in in school right now um so yeah so it was a, a very happy ending um she was able to preserve her uterus um and um, which is a good thing um so yeah, everyone was happy so from from that, do you feel like it's important that patients really kind of stick up for themselves and look at the options and not just listen to whatever the doctor says? Absolutely. What I tell patients is uh, that um, be educated. Uh, you know, it, it being educated um, and going through a process like this um, helps you get through the process. You know what's going on. You have a plan of action. You understand the plan. If you don't agree with the doctor, you know, say, I don't agree. This is why. Um, get a second opinion. Right. Get a third opinion. Right. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. And knowledge is good. Um, and I, especially in this field where you know, differences of opinion can be tremendous mm. from one doctor to the other. Um, so, and talk, absolutely. talk to your uterus, let, let the doctor know what your oh. uterus is saying and what it prefers. <laughs> hey, whatever works, whatever works. I'm right. all for that. So it, if you are faced, I mean, especially now, so things have obviously even progressed forward since then, you know, even in a few short years, I, I'm always amazed just with even like a year or two back, how different things are. Um, what would you, if you were faced, if you were talking to a woman in a substantially similar situation or something, you know, close to that line that has some sort of cancer that may affect their fertility or things along those lines later, what would you advise them to do, especially surrounding preserving their fertility for future, for the future? So it depends, you know, um, we see a lot of patients who have cancer, young, young women who unfortunately have cancer. Um, there are even children who can preserve their fertility now by freezing, uh, ovarian tissue. Um, but we see, obviously, we do not see children. We see uh, young young adults with with various different kinds of cancers, and unfortunately, some of them are involved in situations where they they may have to lose their ovaries, or they may have to lose lose their uterus, or they may um, have to undergo chemotherapy that's going to have a, a tremendous negative impact on their ovarian reserve. So nowadays, fortunately oncologists are, are educated. They're now talking, their staff is talking to women and saying, you know, 
you may not be interested in having children in the future, but you should probably talk to an infertility specialist, find out what's available in terms of fertility preservation before you go through any kind of treatment. And in most cases, we can actually do that. Even in women who are very sick, they may have you know some type of blood cancer that requires them to undergo chemo very quickly. We can see them literally within a day. You know, our conceptions will come in, you know, doctors will come in early, they'll stay late, um, they'll accommodate their schedule because they know these people have to get in, we have to talk to them and uh, so that they understand what's involved and then they can make their decision as to whether or not they even want to do this. Some of them say, no, I just, I can't even make this decision now, I don't want to make this, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in having to, whatever, for whatever reason right or wrong, whatever. So, but at least they have that opportunity. And so we will see them. And, you know, fortunately now we know when we do IVF, we can start stimulation at any point in the cycle. So we don't have to wait for them to get their period or this or that. We can literally within a couple of days, within a few days can get them started, get them retrieved within, you know, maybe two weeks, they're done. Um, They're ready to get started with any kind of of, of cancer treatment that they need. But at least they have frozen either their eggs, and some women don't have partners. You know, they don't have an opportunity to freeze embryos. So they can freeze their eggs now, which is a wonderful thing. So either they can freeze their eggs or they can freeze uh, freeze embryos if they have, uh, have a partner. Some women choose to do both. Some women will say, I want to freeze some eggs, I don't want to freeze some embryos. I don't know if I'm going to be with right? this guy. <laughs> and as a lawyer, I highly recommend that. Very smart. You never know. To be honest, no, to be honest with you, the, the the divorce rate in women with cancer is extremely high. Stressful. It's a you know? lot to go through. Uh, it's stress. It's stress. It's a it's a life stress that can get that can disrupt you know any any relationship. So, you know, that's something that we talk about, you know, some of them, again, choose not to do that, but, you know, they have to understand that that's, that option is available to them. So, yeah. So things have, yes, things have progressed in a very, very good way. Um, Speaking of progressing there, I mean, there's new stories coming out about new technologies every day where there's like three person embryos where, you know, a third person's DNA is fixing like the mitochondria and I don't know the science behind it um, or uterine transplants. And I've seen articles too about um, how it will be possible in the future. And I've actually seen it, you know, within the last year saying within the next couple of years that they can take cells from like two men and create um, eggs and sperm and create embryos from them. What are, what are your, what's your vision of the future? What do you, what do you think is going to be the next thing? Hey, anything is possible. I, uterine, uterine transplant is a, is a very uh, kind of special niche. Um, it's a very complicated, I mean, it may get, get less complicated, but it's still extremely complicated, very dangerous because you can reject the uterus, you can have an infection. Um, so you're not going to see that as main mainstream anytime soon. Uh, very difficult surgery, long surgery. But, you know, there are some women in some cultures that, you know, that, that's their only option. They can't use a gestational carrier. That that's not even an option for them. Um, so um, 
you know, again, I, I, that's not something I, I, I see as being a mainstream thing in the near future. In terms of ge- genetics, um, you know, swapping, swapping genetic material, we are still very early on in that um, endeavor. You know, uh, I think that more stuff is going to be coming from other countries where the they're less strict with uh, getting, you know, FDA approval for certain things or IRBs, which is, you know, a special permission to do certain types of uh, studies on human, human um, gametes. Um, So, you know, I think, I think that is the wave of the future. I think, you know, um, genetics is, you know, and chromosomal testing on all embryos is probably going to be a, a routine, a routine thing. Who knows with CRISPR, which is, you know, trying to change the actual genes within the chromosomes. Um, you know, that's certainly something that will be not too, not too far away in the future. I think there are tremendous strides in, in that field, um, you know, trying to take care of genetic disorders, um, before an, an embryo becomes, you know, obviously. And, a, and just to compare, where where are we now? Right now, I mean, we have some kind of testing that, that tests for like chromosomal abnormality, and then you just choose to use the embryo that doesn't have that. But we're not modifying embryos at this point. No, no, that's all very experimental, very highly tightly controlled for obvious reasons. You, you know, you have to know that when you're making a baby. Uh, when you're making an embryo, you're not, you know, you're not fooling around with things that's going to cause major structural issues, uh, health issues to the offspring. So you have to know for sure. You have to think through the unintended consequences too, you know, that you don't know what changing one thing might lead to something else down the road. You have no idea. I mean, you can test this on, on, on animals and certainly Dolly is an example of, of, you know, of of that, that Dolly, the sheep, but we're not sheep, you know? And so, yeah, so that I don't see, um, a lot of genetic manipulation occurring anytime soon until, you know, until we're absolutely sure that this stuff is, is safe. And that's the way it should be obvious for obvious reasons. But right now, um, chromosomal testing is become more and more and more routine. Not all centers, um, push it as, as much as other centers. We, we do probably over well over 90% of our patients, uh, do chromosomal testing on their embryos. And basically that all that is, it, it makes sure that the, um, they have the proper complement of chromosomes, 46 XX, 46 XY. Um, and so why, why do we do that? Well, because most of the IVF, uh, failures, you know, failure to implant are secondary to chromosomally abnormal embryos. Um, and so, uh, if you're putting, if you know you're putting in a chromosomally normal embryo, the chances of implantation are just so much higher. Um, so you, the time to, to pregnancy is is a lot can be a lot quicker if you do chromosomal testing. Less miscarriages. Most miscarriages are secondary to abnormal chromosomes in in the in the embryo um, and in the fetus. Can you speak a little to the accuracy of that testing? I, I get that question a lot myself on a day-to-day basis. So I'd love to hear hear an actual doctor say what how accurate this testing really is. <laughs> the testing is extremely accurate. Um, and I would say anywhere from 2 to 4% chance of a false positive or false negative. 
which means that there's a chance that you may miss an abnormality or there's a chance that you may be discarding an embryo thinking it's abnormal. But it's very, obviously, it's very, very small. Um, and then there's issues with something called mosaicism, which is, of course, part of that false positive, false negatives, where um, some of this, you know, we take cells from the embryo and we don't even take it from the embryo. We take it from what the forms of placenta. So there is a chance, you know, there are cells, some cells that may be different from other cells in that um, trophectoderm, which becomes placenta. And that's called mosaicism. And if you pluck out all the ones that are abnormal and leave all the ones that are normal, you're going to think that that, uh, that embryo is abnormal and, and, and the same the other way. You could be plucking out normal and most of them are abnormal. So that's where your false positives and false negatives come into play. But that's still pretty rare. Oh, it's rare. And we always tell a, a patient, you know, you go in, you're 38 years old, you're 40 years old, you're 41 years old. And you, when you start your pregnancy, you are a 41, you need to be treated just like a 41 year old. They're going to say, we recommend that you have chromosomal testing because blah, blah, blah. Um, we recommend that they proceed with that, particularly if, if there's anything that would suggest that there's a problem with the, you know, with the baby. Um, just because they're false positive, it's not 100%. So they can't just rely on, on the fact that they put in, quote unquote, chromosomally normal embryos. What, what kind of recommendations would you have for a listener who might be, you know, thinking about wanting to have a child and they've been trying, um, like, do you, do you recommend kind of waiting and trying for a while or, you know, first chance you get see your reproductive endocrinologist, or if you're a gay couple, just try for a couple of years at least and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fun anyway. Trying for- um, well, it depends. Um, so Theoretically, most women within a year will get pregnant. If they are normal, they're young, um, no unusual history, um, then so that's why we recommend try for a year if there are no issues with either you or your partner um, and um, for a year and if you don't get pregnant within a year. So that's anyone at less than age 35. That's the recommendation. Try a year. If you can't, then uh, see your uh, either your gynecologist or your gynecologist, and then refer you to a reproductive endocrinologist if they feel that's that's needed. Now, that but um, you know there are women who have irregular periods. There are women who have had a history of surgery in their pelvis, a uh, history of pelvic infections. Um, you know they've had an ovary removed. They've had cysts on their ovaries that have been removed. Things like that that will you know, send out big red flags saying, you know what, you know, I've been trying for three or six months. I'm not getting pregnant. I have this history. Or if they're not getting periods, then obviously there's, you know, there's no reason to try on their own. They can, but they're not going to get pregnant. They're not ovulating. So, you know, obviously that's, there's caveats to that recommendation, right? So you have to look, same with men. And, you know, if a male has a history of, testicular surgery, um, if there's a history of infertility in males in their family, you know, a whole host of things, then, you know, obviously. Now, another big problem right nowadays is these commercials for low T. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, all the, everyone has low T, all these men have low T. So it's unbelievable oh, yeah. the number of men, even young men, that are on testosterone, which 
tanks really? their uh, their sperm count. Oh, you know, no. their sperm count becomes zero. I clearly am not not watching the same channel. Um, I mean, I guess they don't play the commercial during the kids' shows. But uh, so so what? Why are men taking testosterone? So- why are there these commercials about low T? You never heard these commercials. I, I haven't. No, no, they don't. They don't. Oh. They don't play that during Paw Patrol. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> no, yeah, that you know, it's like the Viagra commercials. It's now this that's oh. new thing. You know, they're they're tired. Oh. Uh, their sex drive is not as good. You know, go. You know, see a doctor. You know, get your testosterone mm-hmm. or whatever. I'm, ti- I'm tired. Do I need testosterone? <laughs> Wouldn't that be something? So, um, but yeah, so I'm seeing that a lot more in even younger men and they come in and they say, well, you know, I have no problems. I'm, you know, now I'm, I'm I'm getting erections and I have no problems with ejaculation, but I'm taking this medication that I'm going to this low T center. Um, they actually have low T centers. Um, and centers. Wow. Do we we have that? Uh, here yes. too in in yes. Colorado. Oh, yes. I'm learning so, so much. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and unfortunately, you know, either they didn't share that they're trying to get pregnant, or the doctor didn't ask them, "Are you trying to get pregnant?" Because you really shouldn't be on this medication. For whatever reason, that's become so. It's both people, you know. You have to. But what I'm saying is, and of course, anyone over 35, they should really, you know, um, six months would be the out, you know, outset of how long they should be trying because obviously they're older. And so again, ovarian reserve is an issue and it becomes more of an issue after age 35. So, um, yeah. So over age 35, no problems, uh, no issues. Um, try six months if you're not pregnant, then obviously seek, um, you know, care with your gynecologist or reproductive endocrinologist. Just a total side question. What, What is the oldest patient you've helped get pregnant? Female patient. With their own eggs or yeah. with Yeah, donors? with their own eggs. No, with their own Ooh, eggs. And the other way too, I'm curious both yeah. ways. Forty six. Wow. That's great. Forty six. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did IVF and, and got pregnant with, which is rare, 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 rare. You know. Right. And, right. Yeah, don't rare. get your hopes up, forty six. No, yeah, no, I was just curious. Um, That's that and, is a and with, with donor uh, eggs, seventies. Because I've seen I've seen <laughs> women in India giving birth in their seventies. We don't do that here. We don't want to be that famous for that reason. So uh, we have a cutoff. We prefer if a woman is coming in for their first, um, you know, first pregnancy, uh, 49. um, So that by the time they're pregnant, they're in their, they're 50 and that's it. Now, the problem with that is that um, they use an egg donor, obviously, um, and they freeze embryos. (laughs) so now they have frozen embryos they had their baby and they want to come back at 52 um and we've done this but obviously on a case-by-case basis you have to be so careful you know even though the uterus yes it does not age um and these women can get pregnant like you said they're 70 year olds you know who supposedly have gotten pregnant elsewhere in other countries. But the problem is that the rest of our body ages. So our, you know, our chances of developing hypertension, diabetes, uh, you know, premature, you know, premature delivery, all kinds of complications will look, are much more common in the older women. So they have to be screened. They have to get an EKG, obviously a mammogram, um, you know, okayed by their doctor, okay to proceed with pregnancy. They see a high-risk specialist, make sure that they're okay. 
So we're very careful with that. Um, fortunately, knock on wood, I've never had a bad outcome with women. I think the oldest that I've had is, is 52, 52. They should came in and 52. And so that was the oldest. Yeah. I, I just can't even imagine starting from fresh there quite honestly. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, but the, you know, they're just coming from a different place. And you know, this woman who was 52 actually had a baby, you know, she had baby at home, you know? Wow. Um, so, and she was ready to, you know, to have another one. Um, they just, they're just coming from another place and, um, you know, who, who am I to, you know, judge and they understand that they're older and, uh, and that they're, uh, their kids are going to be in college when they're far older and economic issues and, and their health issues. But, uh, you know, we, we try to make them understand, um, especially when they're using donor egg anyway, all these people use donor egg, they see a psychologist, it's required, they have to get psych- a psychological right. clearance. So I'm sure all these topics, oh, well, I hope all these topics are discussed. Yeah, the, no, there's no, ju- there's no judgment from me. I'm just... No, I, no, I, I, no, no, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm, with I'm you. also in my forties and uh, I'm tired. That's because yeah. of your low, <laughs> exactly. low I would not have the energy. God. God bless them. It is my low tea. I do need to have I have low tea. <laughs> 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 oh my goodness. Oh. Dr. O'Shaughnessy, any other patient stories or kind of a learning lesson or you know inspirational to give hope come to mind? Yeah, I think that there's one other thing that we have to understand. There's another uh, category of patient that we forget about, you know, um, and that's patients who get pregnant but can't stay pregnant. And those patients are just as, are probably more challenging than our infertility patients and more frustrating uh, for us. Um, These are patients that go from doctor to doctor. They don't understand why, you know, they're getting pregnant. They even doing IVF and putting embryos in, they're gorgeous. Um, And so those are the, I would say those are the the patients that are to us uh, can be the most challenging and the most rewarding when we, you know, when they get pregnant and stay and stay pregnant. So I, you know, there was one patient who, again, you know, tenacious, um, she, um, was young when she started, she was 33 and, um, had just male factor infertility. So had to do in vitro fertilization. And so it was a given. So she was at a, another, uh, another practice and uh, they said, no, you need IVF and did her whole workup and they did IVF and, um, they had embryos. They did not test her embryos. So they were untested. And so, uh, her first transfer, she had an ectopic pregnancy, um, and they treated it with, um, oral medication, um, not oral medication, just a medicine called methotrexate, which is now the, you know, standard of care that early ectopics you can treat with methotrexate. You don't have to do surgery. Um, and that was treated successfully. She then went through another, um, transfer. Unfortunately, this time they transferred two, um, and one of them split. Oh. So oh. she ended up with. Wow. Uh, and miscarried oh, all three. Um, and it, this was in the first trimester, so it wasn't, fortunately, it wasn't in the second trimester, thank God. Um, and then um, she then had another transfer and um, two embryos again. Why they would do that, I don't know. Um, and she did not get pregnant that time. So um, she ran out of embryos. Um, so she came to see me. 
And of course, you know, her, her chart was, you know, you know, very thick. And so I had to go through every, you know, all her paperwork. And these, you, these patients, you have to make sure that they've had a complete workup. So her workup had to be, you know, failure to implant, um, which is, you know, she didn't get pregnant with her last um, IVF cycle, uh, miscarriage, make sure that this, she doesn't have uh, issues that would lead to early miscarriages and, um, you know, evaluate why did she have an ectopic pregnancy, which they did not do. So, um, you know, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, women go into these IVF centers and they said, oh, male factor. So we don't have to check your tubes. Why do we have to check your tubes? We're not going to be, you know, we're not going to be using your tubes. So just, you know, what we'll, we'll look at your uterus. If everything is okay, then we'll proceed. Well, when we, when we then looked at this patient, she had, you know, what we call hydrosalpings or tubes are blocked. Um, the hydrosalpings probably is contributed to her miscarriage of her triplets. Um, yeah. So they didn't check that. So we did that. And then we did, um, chromosomal studies on her. She ended up having, um, what's called a translocation, um, which is a chromosomal abnormality. Uh, so this is a, it became, it became this big complicated case where she had to have chromosomal testing. Um, we had to remove her, her diseased fallopian tubes, which were, oh, wow. could affect her implantation. They couldn't be fixed. You just have to take, you had to take out the fallopian tubes. Wow. Yeah. If they're bad these yeah. days, you, nobody should be fixing tubes. Just take them out. Uh, oh, that is, that, that's an old, uh, yeah, we don't do that anymore because the chance of ectopic and it's, it's so high. It's, it doesn't make sense. Um, and what I tell people, fallopian tubes are not pipes. They're very viable, you know, almost like an organ um, that have very delicate um, structures within them. And that's why they work so well. And if you get an infection in there, it's, it affects them permanently. So even trying to open the tube, open the tube, is, it really it doesn't work in most cases. So that's why we recommend take them out. They're only going to cause a diminished uh, chance of pregnancy. They can cause either failure to implant or uh, miscarriage. So we, we recommend removing. So she had to have her tubes removed. She had to have, um, obviously, special genetic studies because she had this trans. I don't know. Nobody knows what translocation is. But basically, it's one piece of chromosome is stuck to another piece of chromosome in her. So she had a normal complement of chromosomes, but in her offspring, when the, you know, when things kind of separate and your, and your, um, chromosomes, uh, you know, come back together with the male, some of the chromosomes, some of the chromosomes or embryos will have too few, some will have too many. So many times they present with recurrent recurrent pregnancy loss, but of course she didn't present with that because of the male factor. So the bottom line is we fixed her up. We got everything, you know, all fixed up. And fortunately, we were transferred one normal, what we call euploid embryo, Yay. and boom, pregnant right away. But Yay. it just shows you that you've got to take a step back and say, wait, you know, this is not as simple as it seems. This is much more complicated. Um, and so, yeah. And she pregnant and, and she didn't miscarry. She had a baby. She had a baby. Yep. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. So great. that kind of brings me to, I mean, more of a, a, a kind of closing segue. And I, as a infertility survivor as well, am curious about this because I did not have anybody that I felt like mentored me through the process. But what, um, 
What advice or general kind of feelings do you have for people who, as they are going through and surviving infertility? Right. Um, you know, everybody, you know, goes through this so in, in different ways. You know, some, some people go to support groups because they, they think they get a lot out of that. Some people will talk to their family. They feel very open and comfortable talking with them. That's where they get their strength. The bottom line is you have to find a, a place of strength um, and wherever that is and whatever that is. And so because it's this is a journey that can be very difficult, um, very difficult to do by yourself. Um, men and women deal with infertility in very different ways. So sometimes it's even hard to, to kind of connect with your partner. Uh, when you're going through infertility, they, they, they're on one track and you're on another that, you know, there's just, just the nature of the beast. And I think it's really hard right. for people not to blame themselves when it, you know, it's nothing you could right. do or that you could have controlled. Right. And they think that they can control. That's the, that's the, they, that's the number one thing that I tell women is that it is what it is. You know, yes, there's certain things you can do to make yourself healthier. You know, if you're smoking, stop smoking. If you're drinking excessively, stop drinking. If you're overweight, try to lose weight. If you're not exercising, this is very basic stuff. But in general, there's not a heck of a lot they can do to improve their fertility. And they have to understand that. And they have to understand they are doing the most they can within, within their, within their boundaries, right? Everybody has different boundaries. Some women can do IVF. Some women can't do IVF. They just can't do it. They don't, they, they just don't have the strength to do it. They don't want to do it. Um, yeah. they have to be comfortable with that. They can't have people judging them and say, Oh, you, that's what you should do. Um, so they have to. And so what I tell people is the most important thing with infertility is find strength somewhere. Find someone that if, if it's a nurse, if it's your doctor, if it's your, you know, if it's a friend, try to find that person who you can go to when you're really, when you need um, support. That's number one. And that could be a psychologist. You know, you can have, you know, that there's nothing wrong with that. Um, um, the other thing is um, have, you know, have goals, set goals for yourself. Don't, don't let this be an open-ended thing. Say, I'm going to get, I'm going to do this and then reevaluate. I'm going to do that. I'm going to reevaluate because then that helps you, um, take this in a step-by-step fashion and not be kind of all over the place, you know? And I imagine, I imagine they talk to you about their goals. You can help set realistic ones. Like, don't expect you're pregnant in two weeks. Maybe give yourself a little more time. Exactly, exactly. Have realistic expectations is the other very important thing. I think control, being educated, having some control. What you know, and of course, we can't control this very much. But having as much control as you can uh, helps. You know, obviously within reason. You know, some people are way too <laughs> want to control it way too much, but within reason, so that you're not, you know, you're you're not floundering. Floundering is just not a good place to be when you're, when you're going through this, uh, when you're going through this. So, and I always encourage patients, find the right doctor, you know, um, you have to be comfortable with who's treating you. And if you're not comfortable, tell them, I, you know, you know, you and I are just not connecting. You, can you recommend somebody else? Is there someone else in your, we, patients change doctors in our group quite a bit, you know, um, and we certainly don't, 
Um, we don't get offended in any way. Um, you know, we hand them off and say, Hey, or, and we get opinions from other doctors in our group. We, if we have a tough patient, I write them right away, get on and email all the docs and say, Hey, I've got this patient. This is really tough. What do you think? What would you do? So that, you know, all these things, um, in, in the long run, help the patient and help, you know, obviously help, help me, uh, to feel comfortable with, with, with what I do. And I truly enjoy what I do. Mm. So, yeah. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming on and sharing your expertise and appreciate what you do every day to, to help people and help come true. It was my pleasure. Oh, thank you. All right. Thank you. I think I, I want to do the lesson of the day today, if that's okay. I know it's unusual, but I think it's really important. And what Dr. O'Shaughnessy seemed to allude to quite a bit was be a really strong advocate for your health. You know your body, you know yourself. Don't be afraid to tell doctors what you are seeing. And, you know, don't be afraid to get second, third, fourth opinion if you really need to. Be be your own best advocate. I, I really love that about what she said. And speaking of being an advocate for ourselves, we would love if you would tell us what you think of our podcast, I Want to Put a Baby in You. And there are so many ways you can do that. Um, You can go on Facebook. You can rate us on iTunes. Please do rate us. Um, You can go on Patreon and get special edition um, bonus episodes as well. Uh, We also have a phone number. You can call in directly, 303-997-1903. Again, 303-997-1903 to give us direct feedback. Um, and we look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks. Bye.